for me, you know, quitting is never an option. I mean, I work too damn hard to just say I quit. And if I listened to every time somebody said I couldn't do something, me and you wouldn't be talking right now because I wouldn't have done half the things that I'd done, right? I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to Storymark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, the overall solo winner of the 2021 Race Across America, Leah Goldstein. Not many people in their 50s live out their dreams. Leah Goldstein is an exception. She's a former kickboxing world champion turned Israeli undercover police agent turned professional cyclist. And in her 40s, after a couple of nearly career-ending crashes, one was called one of the worst in the history of the sport. She transitioned to ultra-distance bike competitions. At age 42, she won the female division of RAM, the race across America, one of the longest and toughest in the world. Nearly a decade later, in 2021, she won RAM's overall division, the first female to ever do so. Leah Goldstein is an inspiration to many, but she's also a personal inspiration to me. She's proved that failure isn't an obstacle, that hardships can be beneficial, and that age is just a number. Leah was born in Canada to parents who had immigrated from Israel while pregnant with her. Growing up, she had developmental and physical issues and was bullied for them in school. Until one day, at home after school watching TV... As I'm flicking through the channels, you know, I see this young, small Asian guy fighting 5, 10, 15 people, and I get excited, and I go, wow, you know, he can fight off 30, I only have to fight off 8. And it was Bruce Lee. I didn't know who it was even at the time, right? So I begged my mother. And there was no Kung Fu studios around, but we found a Taekwondo studio. And that's kind of where the whole Taekwondo kickboxing career started, right from watching Bruce Lee. In Taekwondo, I excelled very fast. You know, I became a national champion, junior national champion at 12 years old. And, you know, at that age, boys and girls fight together. There's something about knowing how to defend yourself that gives you that confidence. And I never got into a fight. I never had to. But I wasn't afraid anymore. And I stood up to my bullies. Confident people, it's the way they are. They present themselves different. They act different. They stand different. They deal with situations differently. And that's all that I needed in order to change my situation. And I was very skilled because my father was a boxer in Israel, in the Israeli army, right? I mean, my father, you know, as you know, Jewish father, I, I, he wanted me to be a lawyer, a doctor, a dentist, <laughs> I mean, not to be an athlete or, or go to the IDF. You know, when he saw that I was serious with Taekwondo, he started to teach me the way, you know, boxers punch and stand, they move, the psychology kind of behind boxing. So if you mix Taekwondo and boxing, you get more of a kickboxer. Interesting. What do you remember when you started with kickboxing? Uh, I heard there's a story with a coach or something that uh, humiliated you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, because I was a second degree black belt and I was undefeated. I mean, my head was so big, I barely got through the front door of that studio. And so the coach wanted to teach me a lesson, right? You know, he says, you know, can I help you? And his English wasn't very good. His name was Alan Chang. So I kind of started bragging about myself and he, he told me to zip it, right? And he put me into a boxing ring and I've never been in a boxing ring before. And he brings in this kid about half my size and I think I'm going to kill him, right? But I didn't know it was his most skilled kickboxer. And, you know, and he throws a jab, hits me in the face and my nose starts to bleed a little bit and I get mad. I start throwing my best Taekwondo moves and nothing is making contact and I'm getting mad and frustrated. And the more mad and frustrated I'm becoming, the more I'm getting hit. So then he stops me and he just he goes, you go home and you go think about it. 
So, yeah, I mean, I went home and I was totally deflated, you know, because I thought, ah, I was a superstar taekwondo, black belt, second degree, you know. Kickboxing taught me that, you know, you never ever overestimate yourself or underestimate anyone because anybody is beatable. When I came back to the studio the next day, remember, I'm 13 years old, so he says to me, you know, smoking, drinking, drugs, friends, swear, train seven days a week, train twice a day. And he goes, 17, I make you world champion. And my eyes get big and I go, okay, what does it take to be the best at anything you choose to do? And I trained hard. I mean, I didn't train, you know, seven days a week, twice a day. I trained seven days a week, three times a day. And by following those principles, I was a two-time national champion, the North American champion. And at age 17 years old, I was the undefeated champion of the world. Wow. With the amount of punches to the head, you have to know that at some point, right, there's life after that sport. Any contact sport, football or hockey or boxing, you have to be smart with what you're doing. And for me, I was a world champion. So I'm at the top of the sport. What more is there? And that's basically when I retired. Yeah. <laughs> And then at some point you moved to Israel to drop your career in kickboxing and you decided to go to the army. As a child, we went back to Israel every year because my family is there. All my mother's family is there, my father, so my aunts, uncles, cousins, you know. So I had a very close connection. And my goal, I mean, I wanted to volunteer for the IDF. I mean, I know I didn't have to, but that was on my radar from when I was seven years old that I said, when I graduate, I'm going back to Israel. I'm going to the service. Got it. So what did you do in the army? I was an instructor Krav Maga, mm -hmm. you know. For those of us that will not understand what Krav Maga means, maybe you can uh, explain it. Krav Maga, is a, it's a Hebrew word, so uh, hand combat. And every soldier in Israel must learn this form of self-defense, you know, whether you're, you know, 140 pounds, 90 pounds, or 220 pounds. So it's basically how to teach someone how to use weapons, such as a rock, a stick, a stone in a lethal way, or say your ammunition jams, how to use your Uzi or your M16 in a lethal way, or and self-defense from all genres, like, you know, judo and taekwondo and karate and kung fu. It's all mixed together, and it's designed, you know, more for the reality of what a soldier may possibly go through. And so when I was recruited me, and I was very I was small, 125 pounds. Pounds and these guys, you know, they didn't know my skill, but with Krav Maga, you, you'd be surprised how lethal you can be being very tiny. <laughs> There's certain parts of the body that you can't train. When you get bopped in the head really hard or in your throat area or your groin area, you know, or your shins, I don't care how big you are. If you get hit by any, even a six-year-old, it's going to hurt. <laughs> so if you know where to hit, it's a good weapon to have. Okay. So you did it for what, a couple of years and then... Yeah, I did that for a couple of years in the army and there was a lieutenant there. His name was um, Mushan and he was a national champion in the sport of triathlon. And he saw me commuting to the base on my bike because you military wage, <laughs> who can afford a car? <laughs> right? So so I used my bike and, and he saw that I was always training because when I wasn't training troops, I was training myself because we had to be very fit. So he just asked me if I wanted to go for a bike ride and I really didn't want to, but I didn't want to say no. And yeah, so I went on a bike ride with my big piece of junk, 30-pound bike, and I did really well. And then I started to ride again. And then he introduced me to the sport of duathlon, you know, run, bike, run, because um, I don't like the water. <laughs> so my first competition, I was in the military. And my Krav Maga instructor, there was a big race on Shabbat. And he saw that I really wanted to do this race. So he takes a military Jeep. He throws my bike in the back. He takes punching pads and kick pads because we don't know how to warm up. We go to this race. I'm warming up, punching and kicking when everyone else is, you know, riding around and running and riding their bike and, you know, and I go into this race and I win. 
And as soon as I win, he grabs me, throws my bike in the whatever, and then we and I go, I know Shahra, I won, I'm going to get a trophy. He goes, no, 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 don't get a big head. You could have done better, right? You know, <laughs> I was thrilled and I loved it. And it was, you know, exhilarating for me and it just made me feel alive, right? And you never forget that first feeling, right? You know, and I thought, okay, I've got some kind of talent here. And then I was, you know, national champion in one year. And that's, I just kind of got hooked from there, you know, huh. and then any opportunity I had, I would train, I would go and ride. But of course, you know, I'm in the military. So like I said, I just did it as a hobby, right? Then I transferred to the police department and I worked with an organization called the Belouch. The Belouch saw me and, and saw that I would be a good fit for their department. And then I stayed with them for about uh, almost eight years. Wow. So Belouch is basically being like a detective or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's not that he's exactly trying to say, it's a spying agency kind of. In my department, it was dealing with a lot of narcotics, foreign crimes that were coming in. Because, you know, I don't look so much Israeli, so they could use me for different operations, you know. So it was it was an interesting time. What attracted you to join this unit rather than, I don't know, going to high tech or, or anything else? <laughs> I think it just intrigued me. I think that I knew members of my family were involved in that type of work. It's just something that I was felt that I was meant to do, was born to do. And like I said, I knew I was going to do that when I was seven years old. I was going to be back in the Middle East and I was going to do so. I didn't understand what exactly, but it was going to be in some form, you know, in the military, in the police department, in security or somewhere in that genre. I was going to end up there. I think I had a harder core than most people expected me to have. You know, they were worried about, you know, me coming from a, a soft country such as Canada, coming into Israel. As you know, the Israelis, right? <laughs> but I, <laughs> yes, I, I can handle myself good, right? You know, and I just did what I had to do. Got it. I think as the years progressed, I think for me, you know, I'm thinking really having a purpose to what I was doing was more important than the ego of the job. And it wasn't fulfilling for me. Like, you know, I never came home from... An assignment feeling wow we did something really positive to change a crappy situation and I wasn't happy doing what I was doing I was a little bit delusional about what I got into you know it's not a James Bond kind of job right? you know it's dangerous I had to become very hard and um, negative I'd become somebody I really didn't like the people that I worked with I couldn't understand how we can do what we were doing and then they go back home to their family and just pretend everything was okay I came home to four walls and a dog right you know and I jumped off my bike and I would get my frustrations out it eats at you and I think you can only take so much of it and at that time the only thing that made me feel alive was competing and that's when I kind of made the realization you know what this is what I'm meant to do I was meant to be an athlete I was meant to be a professional cyclist at that point, coming into my 30s, and I wasn't married, I didn't have kids, and I felt that I was good enough to make that transition. I said, I, I have to do this because I will regret it if I don't. So what does it mean that you left Israel to become a professional? Yeah, as crazy as that may seem. In Israel at the time, you know, there was no women's pro racing. So it would be outside of the country. And it wasn't I left in the young age. I mean, I left when I was almost 31 years old, right? And people said, are you crazy, right? You know, you're way past your prime. They said I was too big for being a climber, too small to be a sprinter. You know, my age was a factor that I basically missed the boat which was the first time that had ever happened to me because up until that point, I excelled in a lot of the things that I've done and all of a sudden now I'm getting slapped in the face. But it was a reality check. I mean, in Israel, honestly, I was a big fish in a small pond and now, you know, I come to North America, I'm a shrimp in an ocean. It was a little bit of a lesson that, you know, maybe not, I'm not that good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think it's crazy. I mean, you are in your 30s. Most athletes, I'm assuming they're, I don't know, in their early 20s where they get to the peak, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, for one 
don't forget my job. I mean, I was also one of the first female instructors to train the commando. Like, you know, I did many things that a lot of men couldn't do, let alone women, right? So I stayed very fit. So I had the engine, I had the right mindset, and I just didn't have the technique of cycling, right? Yeah, and when did that happen? What was oh the Oh my gosh, point? like eight years later. <laughs> I just couldn't get it. And, and people were saying to me when I was, thir- when I was 37, go, you know what, Leah, maybe you should just, you know, get a real job and just, you know, race in the age group category, right? But, you know, what changed for me from the rider I was to the rider I'd become was just hearing five words. I was at a big race in California and I was racing for a pretty, you know, a good U.S. team, but I was more of a support rider. And the biggest U.S. team was having their team meeting, right? And the director, he said something to the effect of when the road goes up, she drops down. So he's referring to climbing. And then those five words that I'll never forget is Goldstein can't climb worth shit. And everyone starts laughing. Goldstein can't climb worth shit, right? And I mean, it was so humiliating at that time. So I basically made a promise to myself that I was going to come back the following year, not only winning hilly races, but setting new records. And so what I did is I basically moved from Vancouver to Vernon because it's more hilly here and more bike friendly. I hired a climbing coach. I ate, breathed, slept, you know, Silver Star Resort here. And I came back the following year, like I said, you know, winning hilly races and setting records that haven't been broken for years. And all of a sudden at 39, I get contracts thrown at me. I had finally reached, you know, the level of racing that I wanted to reach. And then that following year, I ended up having the mother of all crashes. In pro cycling, like the Tour de France, for example, when one rider goes down, it's like a domino effect. So a lot of riders go down. As I went down, everybody else is falling on top of me, right? So I'm getting banged and we're like 80 kilometers an hour is pretty fast. And I ended up landing on my face, broke my body into pieces. The first layer of skin was ripped right off. I mean, my face was deformed. It's still kind of numb. A really scary moment. When I was lying there kind of coming in, I remember holding pieces of my face. I thought for sure there's no way I'm making it through this. Based on Velo News, and Velo News is such a huge cycling magazine that it was one of the worst crashes in the history of the sport. And the probability of me coming back was probably not going to happen. They said I'd never race again, maybe not even walk properly without a walker or a cane. You know, you finally hit the top and now you're back at rock bottom. So how did you recover from that moment? Didn't you have thoughts just to drop it and move on and do something else? Well, for me, you know, quitting is never an option. I mean, I work too damn hard to just say I quit. And if I listened to every time somebody said I couldn't do something, me and you wouldn't be talking right now because I wouldn't have done half the things that I'd done, right? So I made a promise to myself that I don't care how long it takes and the pain I'm going to go through. I'm going to get back on the bike. I'm going to race again. And I'm going to come back even stronger than I did before all this happened. A lot of times when we're faced with an overwhelming situation, we don't know what to do. So we buckle, we freeze, we do nothing. But the point is you have to do something. And even if it seems like it's nothing. And honestly, at that point, the only thing I could do was contract my abs because I was bed bound. But like I said, I woke up and I just made that promise to myself. Doctors were floored at how fast I was healing. They released me two months earlier from the hospital. And as soon as I came home, I started my recovery. And you know what? I was back on that bike in that following season. For me, the hardest was the flashbacks, right? Like physically, I knew I could get back on that bike, right? Because I was very fit. So those images, they stay with you. I mean, even now when I'm descending, I'm very cautious. Even in my car, descending in my vehicle, I would be braking. Trauma like that, it stays with you. You just have to learn how to navigate it. It was a process. Was that the point where we switched to longer distance competitions? 
I mean, I came out of the crash. There was races that I wanted to win. I went to Israel. I won three national championships. There was a couple of things that I had to do, right, as, as a professional racer. And then when I did those, I realized that in races that were longer, I excelled more, that I always progressed more kind of midway or at the end of the race. And also my ability to be very functional with very little sleep. I thought, you know, I'm more built for ultra endurance racing. So then when I transitioned, kind of when I was in my like 42, 43, then I transitioned into ultra endurance racing. My goal as an ultra endurance racer was to tackle race across America. That's the hardest endurance race in the world. It's a 3,000 mile, 5,000 kilometer nonstop race all the way from Oceanside to Annapolis. And what makes it difficult is you've got 12 days to do it. So it's not a matter of if, but when you're going to experience back, neck, knee, constipation, diarrhea, swelling, and Mother Nature will throw everything at you. And then because, you know, in a 48-hour period, you're sleeping between zero to three hours, so you'll start hallucinating because your brain goes kind of wacko on you, right? You put all that together, and that's a ram rider, but you have to also qualify for a race across America. But on my first ultra-endurance tryout for RAM, I got hit by a car nine weeks prior to the race. So when I was in Redlands, California, a lady was texting and she hit me from the rear of the bike when I was coming back to the team car, which ejected me about 20 feet in the air. And I put both my arms out not to land on my head again. And this is nine weeks before qualifying for the hardest race in the world, right? So I remember lying there with two casts on my arms and and I said, okay, well, I can feel my legs, right? The legs are good. So when I got home, I was determined because if I didn't qualify that year, then I'd have to wait two years and I didn't want to do that, right? So when I got released from the hospital, I had some friends set up my bike on a trainer, which is just a device that you can put your bike on. And then I had two ironing boards on either side of me that I'd rest my hands. And that's how I was training for Race Across Oregon, which was my qualification qualifying race. <laughs> so so I go to race across Oregon and I remember this, the pain from the jarring because my hands, I just got the cast off like about two weeks prior, right? And I was in so much pain. I remember I just riding really hard. I wanted to get, to get to the finish line and I had 45 hours to do it. And I end up doing it in 35 hours and I win the race and I set a new woman's record. And I thought to myself, damn, if I can do this with two broken arms, I'm going into race across America to win it, not just to finish it in 12 days. So I'm trying to understand it. So you are at what age at that point? 43. 43. Wow. Yeah. I'm in my 40s now. And this is such an inspiration thinking about at this age to compete professionally. I thought it is like, you know, ages wise, you're competing in your age group, but you're no. competing. <laughs> no, I'm not in my age group. <laughs> you're not in your age group. <laughs> oh my God. I'm assuming there are younger men competing in this category, right? Well, I mean, honestly, for women, the peak in ultra endurance racing is around 35 to 45. And then men, it's around 30 to the 40, like, you know, that age bracket. Well, you'll see that champions are kind of in that age bracket, right? After that, then you're kind of pushing the envelope, like where I am right now. Now I'm pushing the envelope. <laughs> in all honesty, if you look at ultra endurance racing, it doesn't become physical anymore. When I start Race Across America, I ride the first 45 hours nonstop. And then you're riding 24 hours and you're sleeping about, you know, from 30 minutes to three hours maximum, right? Huh. That's it. Because you have 12 days to do it. It's a long ways, you know, and, wow. you know, you have wind conditions, you have elevation, you know, at the Appalachians, you have the Rockies. I mean, it no longer becomes physical. It's purely mental because everything hurts all the time. And it's a matter of how do I navigate that? You know, you and I can be in really competing against each other. You can be in better shape than me, right? But if I'm mentally stronger in an ultra endurance race, I can hands down, I'm going to beat you. Leah, 
In 2021, you won the RAM competition, overall division, competing against both women and men. Take us through the race from your eyes and tell us how the hell did you do this? Ram last year was a very interesting year. It was also the hardest conditions the race has ever had. The temperatures going through California and Arizona was about 115 Fahrenheit, like 50 Celsius. And that heat carried right across. Like even in Kansas, I remember I had welts on my back. I was burnt through my jersey. It was so hot that I couldn't even touch the cockpit of the bike. Like, you know, I had to douse it with water. You couldn't put your water bottle in the cage. You couldn't touch it. It was that hot. Like you're riding in an oven. It was just excruciating. You should have seen our how we looked at the end. We were not pretty. <laughs> oh my we're all gosh. burnt. Our lips are all swollen. I think my crew kind of cleaned me up, right, for the kind of parade finish at the end, right? But yeah, it was it wasn't good. <laughs> at the end. I can only imagine. So last year, I was the first woman in 39 years to win Race Across America. There was only three finishers, only three solo finishers. The first man came in 17 hours after me, and then the last rider came in about half an hour after him. It was a race of survival, I'm telling you, it was mental. I can honestly say that it was one of the most challenging things I ever had to do. So like I said, never say never, never be afraid to try new things, especially the stuff that makes you feel the most uncomfortable, because you never know where it's going to lead you. I'd like to ask you a few questions that we ask each of our guests. What is one piece of advice that you wish that someone would have given you when you started your journey? I think my dad said it all, man. <laughs> just watching, he just said, you know, you're going to fail multiple times and be prepared for it before you succeed. And when you're in trouble, don't always run to people, you know, for solutions as you got to figure things out for yourself. Because, you know, you get into that mo- mode of running to people when something happens and then one day you're going to run, there's nobody to run to, right? So your biggest support system, your biggest fan is you. You got to figure things out for yourself. Got it. What do people get absolutely wrong about you? Oh, that's a tough one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think they think that I'm completely fearless, which I'm not. I'm afraid of a lot of things. I do have a lot of fears, but I just don't let it dictate my path. Cool. And finally, what are you most optimistic about? I mean, to me, it's to be optimistic all the time. I mean, we're after the 10-day record for Race Cross America. I'm still stuck on that. I don't care if I'm 90 (laughs) years old. still be, you know, listen, if I'm still improving, which I am, even at 53, right, then why stop? Leah, you're such an inspiration and it was such a pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit itrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Ellie Blyer, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and let's See you next time.